0: I am grateful to be part of the preaching team that is going through the Epistle to the Galatians. Pastor Greco of course started this off a few weeks ago. Uh, Kurt preached a great message. David King preached a good message last week on the second half on um, the opening verses of chapter two and this evening we'll be looking at verses seven through ten of chapter two. Um, In particular. So um, this is God's Word, and we want to understand what God the Spirit would have for us here as we study it. I trust that you'll be blessed by it, as I have been blessed in the study and preparation for this. But we need God's help as we come to His Word. And so before we read this text, let us bow and pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of His Holy Word. Lord, we need you. And we thank you for the prayers that have all, all already been offered, uh, Lord, for the preaching of the Word tonight. We know that your Word is, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So Lord, we pray that you would unsheath the sword of your Word, Lord, not because of me standing here, but Lord, because of your Spirit working among your people, Lord, to do the work of ministry, to do the work of your Word. So, Lord, give us ears to hear, give us fertile soil to receive the fruit, the the seeds of the gospel, and Lord, may you cause fruit to grow in our hearts, Lord, in and through the receiving of your word, Lord, we pray. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts here be acceptable in thy sight, O God, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. James, I'm sorry. Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. The book of Galatians is a grand and glorious epistle. It is likely the first epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote, but if you'll notice, and it is very easy to notice if you are familiar with Paul's writings at all, that it has a very different flavor from some of his other epistles. I love reading Ephesians, for instance, where in the first three chapters he lays out this the glorious truths of our salvation and how it has been planned before the foundation of the world that we are elect in him. And you just read it and your heart soars with the glory of, of salvation through Jesus Christ. And then Paul transitions in, in that epistle into what, how that is played out and, and what that looks like in Christian living in the second half of that epistle. However, in Galatians, as you've already seen, as, as we've, we've already worked through one and a half chapters thereabouts, um, he sets right to work. He, he doesn't even have his customary greeting. And by verse 6 of chapter 1, he is openly chiding the Galatians for turning to a different gospel. Now, understanding exactly what this different gospel is requires a little bit of reverse engineering. Now, I'm, I, I realize I'm speaking to, most, to many engineers here this evening, so I probably don't need to tell most of you what it means to reverse engineer something. But for those that maybe don't know, it's basically when you, when you try to figure out a gadget and how it's designed, whether that be a computer code or some kind of creation or invention, and try to understand how it was designed and, and in a sense, use that to, to recreate that thing. And so Paul, what he does here in the the book of Galatians, he he gives us little clues about what is going on and what it is that he is so worked up about. Um, Commentators, of course, can help us in this, and Galatians is a favorite among New Testament scholars because there's so much going on in it, and, and, and commentators seem to gravitate from our text that and it's it's plain to see that there were those of great influence among the Galatian church who were adding to the gospel they were trying to combine the message of salvation with cer- the ceremonial aspects of Judaism and therefore commentators have called them Judaizers they're drawing from the Greek word which Paul uses and we'll see this as uh, especially next week as as Kurt preaches Concerning uh, Paul's rebuke of him, Paul or Peter of of making the Gentiles to live like Jews in order to be accepted in the church, but the method of attack that these enemies of the gospel would use were, was to cast doubt upon Paul and his ministry, and his message, and his gospel. Not that it was Paul's gospel, it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they they cast doubt upon Paul and, and upon his apostleship. And Paul spends a lot of time... ...on these issues here in these opening chapters. In fact, I kind of struggled to to think about a title for this, you know, because we... I I can't remember the title of the other messages, but, you know, there's the authenticity of the gospel. I chose the validity of the gospel. Um, I, I think we could also say for a good title, we could say this is the real deal. And I hope you'll see what I'm talking about as we go through this text... Because what Paul is doing is he's establishing here in these verses and kind of building on the argument that he's already been making that he is the real deal. That his message and his commission come straight from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're here in the middle of his defense in verses 7 through 10. I want to look at this under three headings if you want to take notes and try to make sense of what I'm saying here. First, we have the recognition of the gospel message. You, you see that in the text when they saw and they recognized uh, Paul's mission, the recognition of his gospel mission, the perception of the grace given. That is in the text. And then, and then the third point I, I hope to develop before you is that the partnership that resulted in in this interchange and and what was going on here between Paul and these pillars here in Jerusalem, it resulted in a partnership in the building of God's temple. So you have the recognition of the gospel mission, the perception of the grace given, and the partnership in the building of God's temple. Firstly, the recognition of the gospel mission. Well, um, we've seen as we've read these first ten verses... Um, and, and hopefully that was to give you a better context and a, a setting of, of what we're dealing with. Reverend King talked at, at some length about uh, Paul mentioning there in verse 1, after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and he, he helped us understand, um, and, and it, was, it was a bit tedious, but I think it's necessary as we think through trying to uh, harmonize the, the book of Galatians with the, with the Acts, and uh, the book of Acts and understanding where Paul was and, and what was going on. And so whether this, this visit that he's talking about here in our text this evening is um, the visit associated with the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, or as I think is perhaps more likely that it is, it is the visit that we see actually before that in Acts 11, uh, Paul tells us that he's in Jerusalem. That, is, that much is established. And on this visit, he brings Titus with him. Titus is a Gentile. Titus was was not circumcised on the eighth day as, as a Jew. And what is significant here is that Titus was not asked by Paul or by any of the other leaders in Jerusalem to be circumcised. Paul wants the Galatians to know that no one of importance, no one of the apostles himself or the others required Titus to be circumcised. However, these Judaizers, these false brothers, as they are called in verse 4, they likely condemned this. They taught that one must be circumcised to be part of the family of God. And and really, the circumcision issue was was kind of the the keystone of their message, because that was the the sign and the seal of the covenant under Abraham, and so that's what they were holding on to. They were, as Philip Ryken calls them in his commentary, the Torah police. I like that phrase because it helps us remember what they were doing. They were the Torah police. They said that the Gentiles must become Jews to become saved. They're the ones spoken of in Acts 15 when they dealt finally and fully with their message. They said that um, uh, the, uh, Luke, as he's writing Acts 15 there, says that that these Judaizers would say that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this was their mantra. Jesus plus the law. Jesus plus the law. And Paul comes along and says, no, it's Jesus plus nothing. That's what salvation is. Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus who saves. His work upon the cross is full and final. That is the message of the gospel. Jesus has completed the work, and he says their so-called gospel is no gospel at all. And Paul says, as we read in in the text, that it would lead men into slavery. And Paul is so absolutely convinced of the validity of this gospel message because he got it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we said, these Judaizers were seeking to cast doubt upon the source and the origin of his message. They, they seem to say, well, you, you are just, you know, you get your message from those in Jerusalem. And he's saying, no, I got it by a direct revelation from Jesus Christ. And we, um, I think that we could even fall into the same trap because we see the 12 apostles the the 12 disciples receiving their calls in the early days of Jesus' ministry when he's walking along the Sea of Galilee and he calls Peter and says, come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. But even though Paul received his call and his commission after the Lord Jesus had ascended, it was just as valid. It was the same Jesus that gave him his call. It was the same Jesus that called Paul as called Peter. And that's what Paul is saying. That's the message he is is trying to get across to the Galatians. And despite Paul not needing the blessing of the other disciples, he writes here in our text this evening how they did receive him. He said in verse 6 that they added nothing to him, yet they saw that he had been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised. So if we think about it, nowhere do we see in the book of Acts or any of the epistles where where um, Peter needed John's approval, for instance, to validate his gospel. James didn't need his brother's validation to say that his message and his gospel, the what he proclaimed, was valid. No, they were apostles, and they received their message from Christ, and they took it forward and proclaimed it to the world. All of these men alike, all of the apostles, received their calling and their commission from the Lord Jesus themselves. And even though the apostles in Jerusalem added nothing to Paul, he seems to appreciate the fact that they recognized his ministry. They gave him the right hand of fellowship, it says. And he wanted the Galatians to know that as well. So not only was there a recognition of Paul's gospel mission to the Gentiles, but there was also a perception of the grace of, That was given to him. Look at verse 9 with me. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Peter and James and John saw and perceived the authenticity of Paul, his profession, his apostolic authority, and the message that he taught. Now, as we've said, and, and, and we're going to at least take the position that this is Paul's second visit to Jerusalem, his first visit was, seems to be early in his, his ministry and soon after he um, was converted there on the road to Damascus. There we read um, in the, towards the end of chapter 9, Acts 9, 26 and 27, um, that he wanted to instantly join the other disciples, but they were afraid of him. And understandably so. Here was Saul as he was known at the time prior to his conversion, the man who was the enemy of the gospel, the man who thought he was doing right by going into people's houses and dragging them out and putting them in prison. He was, he was the man that actively pursued Christians and put them in prison, prison. He was the one that held the coats at the stoning of Stephen, the first man in the New Testament to die for his faith in Christ. Before his conversion, Paul was in a very real sense an evangelist for Judaism. He thought his actions were pleasing to God, but then he really met the Lord Jesus Christ. There on the road to Damascus and and Jesus asked him, why are you persecuting me? Paul of course answered, who are you Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Paul's life of course was radically turned around and and um, he he began preaching the gospel soon after that. But here, in Galatians 2, he's a mature believer. Um, he has had time in the desert, as Reverend King shared with us last week. He's been preaching for some time, perhaps in some obscurity, it may seem, but but he is mature in his faith, and he's clearly a driven man. He is passionate about proclaiming the message of the gospel, and he's frustrated that a false gospel is being proclaimed to the Galatians. The gospel he preached, he, he proclaimed to these pillars, the apostles in Jerusalem, and he boldly proclaimed the same gospel to kings and to false teachers alike. So what was it that drove Paul to, to be passionate about this. Well, it was his faith in Christ. It was the faith that these pillars recognized. Paul was utterly convinced that he was the chief of sinners, as he described himself in another epistle. He who had persecuted the church and imprisoned Christ's followers was an accomplice to murder Paul knew that because of the free grace that had been offered him through the death of Christ, he had been made right with God. That that Christ's perfect life that he lived was accounted to him. Paul knew that. Paul understood it. His faith was strong and real. And he became an unstoppable force for the gospel. We should be driven by a similar force. If you are in Christ this evening... Your life has been radically changed forever by Christ. Let me ask you tonight, do you know for sure that you are a child of God? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that Christ's death and resurrection are your own? Have you recognized that you're a sinner without hope apart from Christ? Hopelessly lost and and rightly deserving of God's wrath. Are you seeking to follow Christ not only as your Savior, but as the Lord of your life? And even if you're not a big sinner, or haven't been a big sinner in your previous life, you're still a sinner. We heard, if you were uh, privileged to be at the men's breakfast yesterday morning, we heard the amazing testimony of our dear brother uh, Derek and, and how God worked in him as a young man and turned him radically around and made him a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might hear a testimony like that and think, Oh, well, that's not me. I'm, I was never a big sinner like that. And it reminds me of of the Lord Jesus when he talks about that in in Luke 7. And if you will recall, Jesus went into the house of of Simon, the Pharisee. And while he was there, this woman came in and and broke this alabaster box and and anointed Jesus' feet and, and washed his feet with her tears and anointed his feet and and, and Simon, the, the Pharisee, said, if you were really who you say you are, you would know how big of a sinner this was. And, and Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And so he tells about this moneylender who had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii, I'm just going to say $500, and another 50. And um, he canceled the debt of both of those. And so he asked him, who, which of these two loved him more? And, and Simon, of course, answered, well, the one who had owed more. And, so, and Jesus is saying, yes, you have spoken rightly. But people of God, if we really recognize who we are before the sinless Savior, before a holy God, we should be humbled to the dust, recognizing how great a sinner we are. And I trust that if you have walked with the Lord for any length of time, you've begun to recognize how great a sinner you are and how great the grace is of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Paul recognized that. And Paul, yes, he had a colorful past, as our brother shared yesterday morning, that he had a colorful past. My past was not as colorful. I grew up in the church, and I'm grateful for that. But I see in my heart so much sin, And if we are honest with ourselves before God, we recognize how great a sinner that we are. We recognize the grace, what great grace we have been shown. So we should know that we're great sinners, but that we serve a greater Savior. And that was certainly true for Paul. The faith that he had in Christ was then recognized by the other apostles. And they extended the hand of fellowship to him. So let me ask you one more thing. Do others recognize your faith? Can they look at, that, at you and say, yes, that person, that man or woman, that boy or girl is a believer? As the, the, the phrase that you've probably heard many times, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Our salvation is not based upon others' opinion of it. It is a work of God's free grace in the heart of the elect. However, there are marks of grace that can be seen in the life of the one who has been set free in Christ. Others should see it, especially those within the church, especially those nearest you. And that's exactly what was happening here. The apostles saw the validity of Paul's profession and his gospel message and mission. And that brings us to our third point, the partnership in the building of God's temple. Now, this may seem a little less obvious in our text. What does the building of the temple have to do with Paul and the, and the, the apostles in Jerusalem? You might say, well, preacher, you've been, you've been studying Ezra and Nehemiah too long, and you've, you, you're kind of, kind of hung up on this building thing. But just bear with me. What does Paul say about these other apostles? How does he refer to them? Well, we just read a few moments ago, verse 9, and and he said, When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship, and so forth. Paul says that they seemed to be pillars. Now, that's an interesting turn of phrase. Um, it, It almost sounds initially like it's a disparaging term or that he's casting doubt upon them. I think what he is doing... And, and if we understand it in the context, he's saying, I didn't really need their their stamp of approval. I received that from Christ. Um, and I think he may be cautioning against a, an undue veneration of them, but he's also, in a sense, recognizing their authority. But but we must not pass too quickly over his words, over his choice of words there. He said that they were, they, they seemed to be pillars. Now... When we say that someone is a pillar, a pillar in their community or whatever, we, we, we mean they're a solid member of society. Uh, they're prominent leaders, persons of character and integrity. And, and that certainly was not untrue about Peter and James and John. However, the term pillar would, would bring something, up, something more to the mind of the first century reader of this text. And that does take us back to the temple. For in Solomon's day, the temple that he commissioned to be built, and then we read about its building and dedication, had these two huge columns of special importance, so important that they were given names. Now, in our family, somehow, uh, a few years ago, we started naming our vehicles. Um, And and I think that was just because they have certain characteristics that we want to memorialize, perhaps. Um, but, But these pillars in the temple, they had names as well. 1 Kings 7.21 tells us he set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. And so Paul here is, is pointing his readers back to that temple. Now remember, stay with me here. Ezekiel and Haggai had talked about that the temple would be rebuilt and that its future glory would exceed even the glory of the former temple. Now, we, we, um, in, in our study, as we went through Ezra and Nehemiah, we talked about how the temple was rebuilt, and, and, and there were those on that day when it was rebuilt that, that actually wept because it did not have the glory of Solomon's temple. And so it was, it was kind of a pale shadow, in a sense, of, of what they thought was the standard. Yet they didn't realize that the standard was actually yet to come. The standard was still to come, and the prophets tell them that, it, that the future glory would exceed even the glory of the former temple. Jesus, of course, came and said that his body was the temple. He said in John 2, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show, for, show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And again, they were talking about Herod's temple in their day, in Jesus' day. And they're saying, what, are you some kind of a crazy man to say that you can rebuild what has taken, in three days, what has taken 46 years? But Jesus was talking about something else. And John tells us plainly in verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. And Paul, if you you continue to read in the epistles, he he continues to pick up on this temple language and help us recognize, the saints of God, that we are the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, Peter says in in, uh, 1 Peter 2, "...you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ." And we read also in Ephesians that, that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. For you are being built into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. Now it's easy to pass over this and... And, and, and yes, it is speaking metaphorically, but, but in a very real sense, the Spirit dwells within God's people. Under the old covenant, the tabernacle, and, and then later the temple, was the place where God dwelt. And Jesus came to dwell with us. He tabernacled among us. And now we are the temple. 1 Corinthians, finally, the, the final scripture concerning this. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So saints of God, we are God's dwelling place. We are the bricks and mortar. We are being built together. So let me ask you, how are you doing? As the dwelling place of God. How are you doing. As a temple replacement. How's that working out for you. Are you leaning into that. Are you a temple worthy. Of the dwelling of the Holy Ghost. Or is there some house cleaning. You need to do. Paul is saying here. That he and the other apostles. And we could really say that. In a sense we are all pillars. We are all part of God's. If we are in Christ, we are part of the temple of the Holy Ghost. And we are partnering together to see the house of God built. Peter went to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. They partnered in the gospel to see the church built. And we should be on a similar mission They were eager to link arms for the cause of Christ. They recognized each other's gifts and talents. They were zealous to see the gospel go forth and the church built. Is that true of you? Are you eager to see the gospel spread? Do you have a heart for the lost? Are you eager to see the good news spread to others so that they too might become part of the people of God? So as we close let me ask you, is the grace of Christ dwelling in you? Is it seen by others? Is it easily seen in your life? Are the marks of grace there? Are they evident for others to see? And are you eager to tell others of that grace? Let me issue a challenge to you. This is is early in December, and and December is a month as, as we've Considered already this, this Lord's Day, it's, it's busy, there's many things going on. As, as Pastor Greco was, was talking in some of his opening remarks, I thought, why did Christmas have to come at the end of the year when, when all the projects are rolling up in, in your workplaces and, and everything else? Well, that's, that's just the way it is, I guess. Um, but it, it is a busy time, but it's also a time when, when people try at least to slow down and spend time reflecting upon their lives, even, even unbelievers, I think. Certainly as believers, we should reflect upon the Lord Jesus and what it means means that He came as a babe, that, that, that God Himself took on flesh. But let me issue a challenge to you. In this month, let us pray for gospel opportunities. Let us, let us, let us seriously pray that God would give us Eyes to see places in which we can insert the gospel. Now, now that doesn't mean you have to share or give a full gospel presentation at to everyone you meet or to every person you stand in line with at at Walmart. It just means that that you pray and look for ways that you can speak of Christ. Let Let me take this a step further. Why don't you make yourself accountable to a friend? or your spouse, in doing that, and pray together, and maybe even take an opportunity to talk about the struggle that you feel inside when it comes to this, because if, if y'all are very much like me, you're probably uncomfortable with this, and I imagine some of you are uncomfortable right now, but if you make yourself accountable, then you're just being real with a brother or sister in Christ, and then you can say, would you pray for me, because... I struggle with that. That's hard for me. And then you can share the victory when you say, you know what, I just had an opportunity to speak a little word into somebody's life. Or I prayed with someone because they were struggling. This is a time when a lot of people really reflect upon the loss that, that they are enduring in, in life. So you can, you can show care for them by, by coming alongside those that are hurting and grieving, and those that have lost a loved one, perhaps, and they're reflecting upon that. This is a wonderful time of year to do that. So would you do that? Would you join me in that? I'm putting myself out there at the same time and doing this, but we need to do that, that Christ may be exalted, that His church may be built, and that He would be glorified. Let us pray.